Woohoo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. And so happy to have made it to Tuesday. Yeah. Wowza. So yesterday, it's so funny, we had a big adventure weekend. Yesterday, I needed a big work send of a day. And I just had full on rest day zombie brain. You're, you looked like your eyes were so vacant. It was like one of those flickering hotel signals. Uh, she, she took a nap at one point, came to the top of the stairs, and I had prepared some podcast outlines. So I read her a quote we're going to read you later. And she just looked at me and was like, wait what did you just say? But I was like, uh, absolutely not. But yeah. we actually, it was a great quote. So we are going to read it later on the podcast. But you know, when you're walking down the stairs after a marathon and you're kind of tiptoeing yeah. down, you're using the the sides as crutches. That was like me yesterday trying to send emails. I would type the first thing like, hello, everyone. And the following <laughs> sentences, I would just be like, I have nothing. Yeah, yeah, I can't do it. I got it. a tiptoe. I I literally cannot do this right now. Delayed onset brain soreness. It was so weird. Yeah. I, sometimes that happens to me on rest days. And we were just talking about it. And it was like, well, maybe I should probably like go for a walk in the morning or just like take the bike around the block or something to like get my brain to this Find state. some sort of endorphin rush. Yeah. You, what it reminded me of is, you know, when the Macs just have those spinning wheels that are just like, what's going on with my computer right now? That must have been how your brain felt. Mine feels like that often on rest days too. Yeah, it was fascinating. Well, sometime around 3.30, I was like, heck with this. I was like, yeah. I'm not... I'm done trying to force this work day. And I went to Home Depot and it was like my soul found sustenance <laughs> in Home Depot. It was amazing. I was like one of those dads wandering the aisles, getting like all these creative visions and getting so yeah. jazzed. I actually sent you a picture from the toilet aisle. I was like, yeah, look yeah. at me. It was a Megan's great mask with like the guys. Yeah. Every time we go to Home Depot, you just like go back and forth over and over. It actually reminds me of my dad. I was just thinking about, I would go to Home Depot with him when I was a kid and we, I would just sit in the car and I'd be kind of like surly and he would come out maybe three hours later. I'm like, dad, what the fuck are you doing at Home, Home Depot? Home Depot is amazing. It smells so good in there. I've, I've talked about on this podcast before smells. I was like, yeah. I think I really have a sm- like a strong sense of nostalgia via smell, but I don't know why it smells amazing in Home Depot. Probably varnish. I don't know what varnish is, but I think it's probably varnish. Varnish and like wood choppings or something like that. But yeah, we got grass seed because we are we live on a horse farm and yeah. uh, we've been like, our year long project over the last couple of years has been to like grow grass. And so we were out there yesterday, like doing the, the like yeah. the standard grass seed grinder. And all of a sudden I would just like randomly take heaps of grass seed and just like throw it in the air. <laughs> Megan would find places where there wasn't any grass. She would just take it so that it would accumulate like a half inch of grass seed. I'm like, I don't understand very much about this, but that doesn't seem productive. It was fun. It actually reminds me when we first were looking at this house, I think it, the only reason it fell into our hands is because the whole thing was baked down dirt because it was a Actually, no, it was horse poop. It yeah, literally yeah. was not dirt. It just well, was like the entire backyard was poop. It was Addie's joy. Yeah. We walked in or as, I, as we walked up for the first time, so Megan saw it and was like, oh, we got to go back to that place. And we walk in and, you know, I'm a little skeptical. I'm always kind of the, the You are skill. super skeptical. You're I, a total buzzkill. I am the turd in the punch bowl. I am the horse poop in the punch bowl. And that is accurate <laughs> for this situation. As, as we walk in right in the front lawn, a horse just takes a massive dump right And I was there. like, this is home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you were still skeptical. But fortunately, I think it really devalued the, the listing price, which ended up being very productive for us. But uh, I think the lesson is Megan looks past maybe the surface level things, which is maybe why she married me in the first place. I just got really excited. I was like, this farm is going to be like our grass seed future right here. <laughs> I love it. So we've gotten so many great questions to the podcast. Thank you so much. We have a big list, but keep sending them in. We go totally out of order. Well, it's funny. Yeah, we have a list now of like a 24 page list of all these questions. And some of them are so amazing and we're getting to them. We're working down the list, but send us more questions. So it's somewhere all play at gmail.com. Love hearing from you. We've gotten just like 
our, our listeners are smart. Yeah, yeah. We learn a lot from so you. So smart. And we try to respond like at least enough to be helpful uh, to the emails themselves too. Um, but in the process of this podcast becoming more established and feeling more formal and really proud of it, actually, um, I was doing a Google search to get a quick search engine, engine optimization uh, profile going. And I saw that, uh, you know, the constant struggle I have seen ever since we come up, came up with the Some Work All Play name is that the acronym SWAP means many different things. Many, many different things. Which have very different meanings. It's funny, whenever I go to post about the podcast, you're like, Megan, it's the Some Work All Play <laughs> podcast. It's not the SWAP podcast. Yeah. And as I was Googling SWAP and podcast and things like that, um, I saw uh, another podcast that was all on the first partner swap. Actually, the tagline for this <laughs> podcast, it sounds like someone from Silicon Valley just got really like creative with buzzwords. We started this podcast to help curious newbies navigate the lifestyle of having an open marriage and ethical non-monogamy. <laughs> sounds like they're trying to raise some money from a horny venture capitalist. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's kind of funny that we didn't realize that for many years. And then someone on the team was like, hey, when you call us swappers, that actually means something very different in our world. And I was like, whoa, what's your world? <laughs> uh, but also very interesting. It also makes us think, you know, swappers have had it tough, like the actual swappers. Oh, during COVID, being a swapper has probably had to be a nightmare. But I was yeah. thinking actually, you know, during COVID, it probably, because you can't actually do these swapper yeah. things during COVID, talking about it is probably the next best thing. I'm sure it's great for these podcasts. Oh man, the podcast world for, for partner swaps must be taking the freak off right now. Actually, a cooler, a very cool swap thing is on SNL, Colin Jost and Michael Che do a joke swap. And yeah. it's amazing. So maybe we should just try to incorporate that into our podcast. We should definitely do a joke swap. I feel like, uh, you know, It'll put you maybe in an awkward position, but I think we should do it. So this is episode 42. We're very briefly going to touch on the ultimate example of 42, which is Jackie Robinson, um, one of the greatest athletes that ever lived, absolute legend in every single way. Actually, talk about sports. So he's yeah. known, obviously, as a baseball player, but he has played basketball. He's done track. He's done football. Like, And those sports, I feel like, are all encompassed yeah. within this, like, okay, like this makes sense. This is like baller territory. And then he's been great at tennis and swimming. And I'm like, yeah. what the fuck? What kind of athlete? This athlete is amazing. And I think there's a good argument that at UCLA, his worst sport was baseball. So he played baseball for one year. And in that year, he batted 0 0.097, which is lower than like That's any bad. Yeah. It's basically, you just close like your eyes. Like my wiffle ball batting average is a lot better than that. Mine is not, at That's least true. when we're playing with field hockey state. But, uh, you know, it shows that you know, this wasn't even his sport. And then he goes to the army after he played baseball at UCLA, had a severe, terrible ankle injury, comes back a few years later, starts playing for the Kansas City Monarchs as this great athlete might draw a few fans, starts playing pretty well. And then the amazing story unfolds where he fights racial injustice and is maybe one of the ultimate historical figures in, in American history. And in researching for this podcast, I saw this quote that I just loved about Jackie Robinson. It says, of course, we all celebrate the big story of Jackie Robinson, but I also love the small story. The one of a 27-year-old man with an aching ankle, a quirky swing, a deficient arm, and a .097 college baseball batting average, transforming himself into one of the greatest ball players ever, because that's what was needed. Human beings really are capable of extraordinary things. And resilience, and courage, and Jackie Robinson, and, and people like him, which there are so many now fighting for other things. It's just you know the ability to get knocked down and get back up and fight back. Um, not just be passive about it. So Jackie Robinson. One of the all-time yeah. sports greats. Yes. Also, okay, so episode 42, this is what we were really thinking of episode yeah. 42, is Life, the Universe, and Everything from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Such a good book. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, perhaps the thing that impacted me the most when I was a child. I read this way too young. I think 
maybe eight or nine years old. Eight or uh, nine years old? Yeah, I like almost lost my voice there thinking about it. Yeah, I read it so young. I mean, I was way- I Okay, was, you're very, very, David, for the audience, David's very, very smart. No, no, I was, I was just uh, perhaps reading books I shouldn't have at a very young age. Thanks, mom and dad. Um, but I also think it helped inform my vision and especially with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, my all-time favorite book. And in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, 42 is the most significant number, which we'll get to in a minute. Well, it's funny because when we first, our first date, we shared book recommendations to each other. And then on our second date, without having coordinated with this, <laughs> we each brought the yeah. book that we recommended for the other person. And I thought that was really so funny what, and kind of a great sign for the start of our relationship. What was your book that you told me? So my, the book that I recommended with you, kind of like a classic, like an amazing book that is not as well known. It's called West of the Night by Beryl Markham. Um, so she was the first person to fly the Atlantic east-west without stopping for fuel and just a brilliant writer. So she wrote this book in 1942 at a time when like, you know, she was doing amazing feats as a woman at a time yeah. like when her writing, I think, was just like totally undervalued. And it's just, it's a great book. Yeah. And so I thought it was actually very interesting that on our first date, you know, I'm meeting this really strong, powerful woman and she tells me about her favorite book. And it's about another woman just flying into the inky blackness away from everything. Should have been a warning sign. Yeah, I was like, this is probably going to be a metaphor for a first year of dating. But what I love, one of the things I love about the book is, so Ernest Hemingway, one of the greatest authors of all time, said about the book, she has written so well and marvelously well that I was completely ashamed of myself as a writer. I thought I was simply a carpenter with words, picking up whatever was furnished on the job and nailing them together and sometimes making an okay pig pen. And that to me is like, you know, Ernest Hemingway, one of the greats, and he's talking about how like, you know, he read this book and was self-conscious of his yeah. own writing. And I think to me, like, it's so cool thinking about someone who is up there and how he responds to yeah. greatness. And I think that's like, we're faced with that all the time. Like someone comes into your life, like I've had that before. Like, yeah. you know, someone comes into your life and you're like, this person is so mind-bogglingly <laughs> great. And I feel like it's the, the true testament of a person is how you respond to that. Yeah, and nowadays on, with social media and everything, you read about these things, you see them all the time. And we talk about that on the podcast. There, There's this constant urge for our brains, I think, to be like, oh my God, I suck. I'm not good. I can't do this what this person does. And I think that's probably what Hemingway was facing there. But the point is everyone feels that and to be like patient with that voice and also give yourself- And to be honest and also yeah. like, you know, supporting of the other yeah, person in that process. Celebrate because people like, like Markham. You know, it's, it's funny, like Beryl Markham never, I mean, her name is not like a household name. It's never, I mean, her writing is brilliant, but she's not a household name. And you wonder like, if she had been born like outside of that time and if she'd written in a different time, like if it would have taken like these people to elevate her voice in the process. Yeah, I had never heard of the book. And then I read it and I was like, oh man, Megan's going to be flying east to west across the Atlantic without <laughs> fuel. This is going to be tough. Well, I okay, so I read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the first two chapters, first few chapters, I was like, this is a very weird book. Yeah. I was like, it's wonderful. It's definitely wonderful, but very, very weird. It's all about non sequiturs and like that classic British humor. We also get in books like Good Omens where it, it switches at you on the end of the clause or the end of the sentence. But then I loved it. Yeah, I think you just have to get into the right brain state. And it's funny because in preparing for this podcast, I went on Amazon. I wanted to see, there was like a second edition of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that I wanted to see on Amazon. And the reviews on Amazon are classic. It's oh my like, gosh. It's polarizing. So it's either five stars or one stars. And some of the one star reviews, I found this one. The humor has dated badly and appears to be written for teenagers who want to learn how to read lengthy and pointless made up words in a desperate attempt to sound more intelligent. I was like, this book is brilliant. How could you say that about this I also, book? I also think it's funny that Megan copy and pasted this directly in like multiple words, like desperate is spelled wrong, for example. Oh my gosh, it is. And so is lengthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lengthily. But uh, that being said, I think that that description really does describe me a desperate attempt to sound more intelligent. Um, it reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, Brendan Leonard, amazing author, uh, by his book, I Hate Running and You Can Too, or, or something like that. It's amazing. It just came out. Um, but he was talking about how he goes and reads one-star reviews, and he shared some of his favorites on his 
amazing work, which is some of my favorite writing. Um, and they're hilarious. Um, I think there's great power in seeing what else gets one star reviews. Well, I think what's really, yeah, I was going to say, I think it's really funny to go to just random objects on Amazon and be like, how could a sponge ever get a one star review? And there's like so many of them, people just shitting on the sponge. <laughs> that sponge is having a desperate attempt to sound like it cleans things. Um, so basic uh, plotline to get to 42 for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is the su supercomputer Deep Thought spent 7.5 million years to come up with the ultimate answer to the universe, the life of the universe and everything. And that answer was 42, just out of the blue. Um, and that, that number led to the problem. Oh, we don't actually know what the question is. So to find out what the question is that 42 is the answer for, the creation of an even greater supercomputer happened. And that supercomputer was called Earth. Um, to brush through the plotline real quick, uh, Earth ended up being destroyed five minutes before its 10 million year program. This is all in the first chapter. Um, and one man survived. Eventually, they pulled Scrabble titles to find tiles to find the answer in his subconscious. And the question ended up being, what do you get when you multiply six by nine? So 42 being the ultimate non sequitur for, for the ultimate answer. What I think is really funny, though, and this brings me back to AP English literature, yeah. is fans and literary critics have come up with all of these different meanings <laughs> as to why Douglas Adams, the author, came up with 42. And there's like, there's all of these different like symbolism, like, you know, irony, like, you know, what does 42 mean? And Douglas Adams was just like, there's a quote from him. He was like, yeah, it was a joke. It had to be a number, an ordinary smallish number. And I chose that one. Binary representations, base 13, Tibetan monks, are all complete nonsense. I sat at my desk, stared into the garden and thought, yeah, 42 will do. <laughs> and I think to me, like that just brings me back to AP English literature when we're like, I think like a lot, there are a lot of brilliant authors yeah. out there who are, who are creating like good symbolism and irony, like on purpose. But I feel like half of the literary critiques are just like people trying to attach meaning to like an author's work that yeah. is not there. I, I mean, so we've gotten emails about some of the things we've written in, in podcasts and stuff with like, oh, is this the meaning? And I'm just like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's totally what I meant. There's this is an 18 layer lasagna, not just like one thing with pa of pasta with cheese on it. Um, and uh, we're the, in Psychology Today in 2018 talked about a specific uh, passage from the book that said that it was the ultimate example of the search for the meaning of life in a, a joke way. So this is what I, the quote I read to Megan earlier. And to caveat this, I was like, David, we are not reading this on our podcast. <laughs> but we are going to read it, but we're going to read it slow and trade off. Because I have had coffee today and was, and as I looked at the outline this morning, I'm like, okay. okay yeah, yeah. We can read I, and I brewed it extra strong. So to give context here, um, you don't really need to know exactly why, but in the, in the world of the book, um, all of a sudden manifested a few miles above a planet are, is a whale and a bowl of petunias, a flower. Um, and they're both hurtling towards the surface of the planet very fast. And that's where Megan picks up. And since this is not a naturally tenable position for a whale, this poor innocent creature had very little time to come to terms with its identity as a whale before it then had to come to terms with not being a whale anymore. <laughs> this is a complete record of its thoughts from the moment it began its life till the moment it ended it. So I'm going to jump in with the whale's thoughts in rapid fire format. Um, Megan just scrolled down slightly past the quote, um, but these are hard quotes to read. So it gives me a chance to really hype up, get my caffeine going. So this is the whale. Ah, what's happening? It thought, er, excuse me, who am I? Hello? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Never mind. Hey, this is really exciting. So much to find out about. So much to look forward to. I'm quite dizzy with anticipation. And wow, hey, what's this thing suddenly coming towards me very fast, very fast. So big and flat and round, it needs a big, wide-sounding name, like own, found, ground, round, ground. Um, that's it. That's a good name, ground. I wonder if it will be, will be friends with me. And the rest, 
after a sudden wet thud was silence. Curiously enough, the only thing that went through the mind of the bowl of petunias as it fell was, oh no, not again. <laughs> Many people have speculated that if we knew exactly why the bowl of petunias had thought that, we would know a lot more about the nature of the universe than we do now. I absolutely adore that quote because it's so, uh, you know, the whale obviously going to, to pull the AP lit style on this, you know, the whale going through the process that we all go through of figuring out meaning. And just as you start to have some semblance that they're of this idea of meaning, thud. Um, in the bowl of petunias, just, oh no, not again. I feel like a petunia is a perfect representation for that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it gets back, it's all silly. Um, the power of silliness in facing the great abyss, um, this great inky blackness that they, we're all hurtling towards in some sense. Well, I think the really thing about the important thing about the power of silliness is the fact that like, it's silliness is not like, I, don't, I think it's important not to override things yeah. with silliness. Like, I think it's really important to actually feel like the true emotions that are happening. Yeah, yeah. And you can look at that and be like, oh, that's silly. Or like, oh, I'll be in a better place at some point. But like not to override that. Like I'm thinking back. So we did a run this weekend <laughs> on Sunday and we we started out. And it was yeah. sunny. It was like a beautiful day. And we're climbing. Well, up. no, no. I So I was, I pointed up and I was like, oh, Megan, we're kind of in like a sheltered space. 200 meters up. It might be pretty windy. Do you want to wear more clothes? And she's she wearing like, no. sports bra. Yeah. So she's just like, no, sports bra's fine. And we get 200 meters up and just hit with a wall of fucking wind. And I'm like, do you want to turn back to the car? She's like, no, we're going. But what do you know? We're getting pelted. So it was a gravel road, a big climb. Up to 8,000 feet. Yeah, yeah. It was like, you know, we're climbing into a totally different climate, but we were getting pelted with gravel and snow because the wind was just like yeah. shoving it into our face and trying to do this like kind of hard. I mean, you were doing a tempo at the time, hard, fast climb. Yeah. And I think it was one of those situations where I looked at this and I was like, this is objectively terrible. Yeah, this is awful. It was, it was horrible in the moment. But it was like, it was also layered with silliness too, but that silliness wasn't overriding the terribleness. Like, it just was yeah. like conglomerating together into this unique and powerful experience. And I'm like, hey, this is going to be a great story in a few days after I, you know, don't die of hypothermia. Yeah, yeah. There was one point where I was like, oh, Megan, hide in the wind behind me. And I tried to do that and then just got blown right back into her. Actually, yeah, I know, yeah, you're like literally gently rolled yeah, yeah. into my side as you're getting blown into the, me. Megan wouldn't get hurt by the blowing rock. She'd get hurt by getting knocked off a cliff by someone that's trying to be chivalrous. And I think this actually is a great segue. So we got a, we got a question on like the power of positivity and like the places where I think it's really interesting to think about the power of positivity yeah. and also like the important caveats surrounding positivity. And this question is from Elle. You and Megan are so very positive and I absolutely love that. But is there ever a time either of you feel like you just don't know if you can do what you signed up for? I guess I'm just asking if there is anyone else that accidentally jumped onto the struggle bus for a street or two. Maybe I'm just looking too far ahead at the entire endeavor. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the answer is yes. That's an amazing question. And it's something that I think is fully ubiquitous. Um, you know, the, as Megan was saying, the whole point is to try to feel all those emotions. Um, but what, like the silliness of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is, is trying to view those emotions from a little bit of a removed state where you're like, okay, I feel these, this is life, but it doesn't define everything about who I am in this moment to have this. I love that. I think it's about being in the present yeah. moment with emotions. It's almost like a very much like a meditative state of looking at where you are and being like, yeah, this is the present moment. I think there's nothing worse than trying to layer like emotions on top of emotions. So to be feeling sad or angry or yeah. upset and then being like, no, 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 I'm going to be happy about this. Like, I yeah. think that's probably the worst because like you're trying to pull yourself out of the present moment. And like we've yeah. had athletes who are going through really tough times and I'm like, oh, I just wish I could be happy. But it's like yeah. at that point, like, you know, who knows? It could be two weeks before you're coming out of this really tough yeah. time. And like you're just wishing time away at that and, point. You know, when you're thinking long term, like almost everything feels impossible when you view it all at once. Like life is hurtling towards the surface of the planet very fast. And, you know, you're what you're trying to do is not indulge that voice that's saying like, oh, this is pointless, or oh, I'm not capable, or oh, all these things. Like, you're always going to have those voices unless you're like a narcissist. The point with those voices is to be like, hey, voices, you're damn cool. I'm damn cool. 
existence. Super silly. And we're going to work through this as much as we possibly those, can. Those voices are important too. Like I think not only is it about like having unconditional self-acceptance through those voices, but it's recognizing that those voices, like if you always experience happiness yeah. or joy, you're going to have no framework for understanding like the true awesomeness of yeah. happiness and joy. And that's why like, you know, like happiness is not something that happens like hundred percent of the time. But like, you know, if you had it hundred percent of the time, you wouldn't even realize how awesome it is. <laughs> shit sucks sometimes. And I think therapy and all these different things are to get you to realize that shit doesn't suck all the time. And to like, have that ability to remove slightly, to find those fun things. In the So like when we're going into the 35 mile an hour, terrible headwind um, and pelting snow, the point is like, yeah, this, this sucks, but it's what we signed up for. And it's the whole point in athletics as a narrative with which you can play with these storylines with like low stakes. I think, I think that also comes to like supporting. I think I'll yeah. have that's a lot as a coach, like how to support other people as they go through these journeys too. And it's like, you know, when someone comes to you and they're like, Hey, I'm having a really shit yeah. day. Like the worst thing you can tell them is like, Oh no, you're not. You're yeah. totally fine. Like they don't want to hear that. And I think it's like, I've really thought about like how to support people in that process too, of like not having them layer emotions on top of emotions. Yeah. And like, believing in yourself doesn't mean ignoring that this stuff exists. Believing yourself means believing in yourself means seeing that this stuff exists and moving forward anyway into that 35 Ooh, mile an hour. I love that. I love that. Thank that you. A, we can end on that. Is that Damn. a mic drop? Yeah, I, that's I feel a mic like drop. I probably shouldn't pull this mic off the table and drop it on the floor. So you'll have to imagine. That. Seriously, I love that. I think it's okay. Let's segue into so this is topic one yeah. on comparison. Very this, relevant. This is from WT. Um, WT said, you have been stressing that anyone who runs is a runner and that runners then are athletes. While I understand the underlying principle, I struggle finding a good balance between, nah, I like to go from a run, I'll go on a run from time to time, wouldn't consider myself an athlete, and I need to train, perform, essentially be the freaking best in sport if I take this seriously to describe my efforts to myself and others. Do you have advice to share on how to work towards seeing myself as a consistent runner who does deserve woohoos in her own right without exposing myself to the stress of elite performance ambitions that are not achieved? Telling myself I am awesome helps, but does not deliver fully and deeply enough. Yeah, and amazing question. And when it said friggin' best in sport, it also had the example of a specific athlete that this person was looking toward. And that's super relevant because we're all looking towards these specific examples um, as these like shining lights on the hill that maybe we're chasing, or even these examples of ourselves that we're chasing. And the point is, it is so much more complicated and potentially disordered. And I think we've talked a lot on here about like data and like GPS yeah. watches and how sometimes you don't even know if the data is right. And it's like, sometimes I feel like you don't even know if these examples are right. Yeah. Like, you know, you don't even know how that person is feeling, how like, you know, being great at sport, like how that intertwines into their life, like what got them there. Like, or what so the real story things. is beneath that data. So to get to our example of data, um, I saw a story online. I don't know how to pronounce these names exactly, but the story was that Mara Cardi and Wanda Nara, um, which is... Uh, there's soccer involved there somewhere. Um, there was a story that said they have sex 12 times a day. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's obviously a, a chance for comparison for the listeners, how many sex everyone has, how much sex everyone has per day. Um, and that sounds pretty tough. Well, it's, it's kind of funny because like, I love sex, Yeah. but I'm thinking about sex 12 times a day and I'm like, I don't, that sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's fascinating to think about, like, you know, I think running is objectively like, <laughs> you know, people see people running 200 miles a week and they're like, that is horrible. hundred miles a week. Yeah. Horrible. But I think like our community has normalized that to the point where I look at that. I'm like, yeah, that's just someone out like training. I think there's a lot of people that run 20 miles a week that are like, man, I'm just having sex six times a day. What? Only six times a day. I can't be that 12 times a day person. What's wrong with me? Um, and you know, it just, it's really complicated. And I mean, the reason that we're starting with this kind of ridiculous example that I don't even know if it's hundred percent true. And that's the point again, like, you know, we don't know, we don't even know if this data is true. Yeah. It's because who knows what drives that if it is true. And it's totally like 
an abnormal behavior, perhaps unhealthy. And well, I've actually, I've thought deeply yeah. about like the physiologic. I'm like, yeah. how do you do this physiologically? I'm fascinated. Are you taking like an aerobic threshold, a lactate threshold, a VO2 max approach to this? Like what would be the best approach to having sex? Well, I think the better today? question, do they, physiologically. Allow, do they allow PEDs? Are performance enhancing drugs involved? Like, do, are they hooked up to IVs? You know, and like getting into Oh my gosh, fluids. there are so many relevant metaphors here to running. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there's Alberto Salazar is their sex coach. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it, but th this, you know, we start with that ridiculous example, but people do it with work too. I had an athlete in their log who was comparing themselves to someone, one of their friend's businesses was valued as a unicorn over a billion dollars, which is probably similar to the sex 12 times a day. Or, you know, we talked about Pete Holmes a couple of weeks ago, comparison to him or comparison to Douglas Adams or Belmar or anyone or like anyone like this the goalposts just keep on moving and then i think once you get to the top kind of like ernest hemingway you start yeah. looking back and you're like oh my gosh these people are catching up to me and i've never heard of them before yeah. i feel like it's like these goalposts are just like moving and all of these interesting like like decision tree sorts of ways and i mean we find that all the time with ourselves like this podcast total labor of love we're obviously not monetizing it or making money or anything. But as soon as I discovered how to look up rankings and numbers and stuff, I was like, how can we get that number a little higher? If you told me this number, many people would be listening to our podcast like six months ago, I would be like, I'm going to punch you in the fucking face for lying to me. Well, it's super funny because I don't even go there. Like yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm so, I love numbers so much. I'm like, I can't even like this to me. Like I can't even put my finger on looking at like the podcast listener numbers or like the reviews or anything like that. And I don't because yeah. I'm like, I will start shifting this goalpost in a way that I know is not healthy oh, for me. Well, Mara and Wanda can clearly put their fingers on lots of things. <laughs> um, and I think that Megan's example there, which we, we hadn't talked about is an amazing example of how to deal with comparison in general. It's like Megan opted out because she knew that as soon as she started playing that game, it would turn into what I was just mentioning, that voice that's like, okay, what is going on here? That's almost like leaving Strava. If you look at Strava and don't feel and good And we've had it. athletes do that. I'm like, yeah, this yeah. is great. Please do this. Like if this is not making you feel healthy or it's not making you feel bad at it or it's not making you feel, you know, whole, don't yeah. do it. What's well, the Marie Kondo approach. Don't play the game. Yeah. yeah if, it, if, if something that is optional doesn't spark joy, don't let it be a Oh part my of gosh, that. what I'm thinking of right now, social media. Yeah. We've had so many athletes who are like, I don't get joy from social media. It's like, yeah, don't use it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the, the hard part with social media in particular, because I think that that's like the source of comparison a lot of times nowadays, is what is actually going on behind the scenes in that person's oh life? Oh my gosh, yeah. And you know, what what would be- What can you actually do in the day if you're having sex 12 times a day? <laughs> like, what is there room for? Yeah, I don't know. Very strong hips though. I feel like that those the strong the strength in the hips will open up lots of avenues for cross. But I mean, I'm sure if they're having sex 12 times a day and doing the normal routine, they're definitely overtrained. <laughs> That's probably true. Um, yeah, I keep coming back to the PEDs. There must be something going on there. I'm I'm totally in a comparison spiral right at this freaking moment. Um, but with social media, if there was a translator for what is actually happening with like mental health and, and feelings and stuff behind the scenes, I think we'd feel very differently about everything. Um, so for example, the, the questioner asked in the thing about someone who's one of the best people in the sport, the reason we didn't actually list the name is like, who knows what that person's going through? One, we all know that results won't make us happy. Two, like the validity of a pursuit is not in the achievements from that pursuit. The validity of a pursuit is in pursuing your potential for the hell of it. And over the long term too. Yeah. And I think actually we're going to talk about volume coming up here in terms of mileage. But what we've seen is a lot of people in sport. So it's like, you know, we've seen these amazing athletes have strong months, yeah. short years in sport, and then all of a sudden drop off the face of the earth because what they were doing was not sustainable. And I think that's the other component of this too, is it's like, you know, you have to sustain yourself for this yeah. like long-term process over years and years and years and years. And like looking to these like extreme outliers, like that's not going to give you any examples for like that process of sustenance. I mean, one of the hardest parts right now about being a coach, and I've tried to mention this to a lot of people, is like, okay, we've been in this game long enough that we've seen oh, generations come and go. 
um, we've seen people in 2013 that were celebrated on magazine covers and had all these Instagram posts that were super uplifting and amazing about what they're doing. And everyone's like, oh, I need to do what that person's doing. And then we see what happens. And that doesn't just happen once. I've probably seen five generations of that come through, especially in ultra running where the comparison game is a little tougher to play. But then there's never any follow-up. Yeah. So it's like, where did this person go? And they're like, oh my gosh, they're not running anymore? Yeah. Like, and it's that to me is fascinating. And, it, and you know, a lot of that is physiological. A lot of it's psychological. It's tough to know exactly. Or it could even be someone's unique life situation. But yeah. like if running wasn't fitting into that unique life situation, like how sustainable was it to begin with? And no judgment calls in that. Like, you know, whatever. We're all the petunias in the whale falling, hurtling towards earth. But the point being, like, while hurtling towards Earth, the comparison trap will just make you have no fucking fun at all. Um, and what that means in practice is, okay, you're going to see people that you want to be and that you, and like all these things that are really meaningful and you want to drive toward. But, oh, my gosh, if that voice isn't reckoned with and, and given some love, it's going to eat us alive and life is not going to be fun we're going to spend our time hurtling through earth like that whale just being like i hate myself i hate myself i hate myself but and that's not the way to go through life wow that's beautiful Thank damn you. you're good uh, you. do you want to let's go five minutes over and do volume oh sweet let's, bonus time let's, let's do it do it so this is on training volume from st how would you recommend an athlete increase weekly mileage over the course of two to four years i have read that you should average an increase average an increase of at most 10 miles per week each year I'm early in my running journey. A few years ago, I did 35 miles per week, but after time off, I'm at 20 now, but would love to embark on the trial of miles and see what I can accomplish. I think this is a great question. Such a good question. And there's so many formulas out there. Like, I don't know. I've heard the classic formula. And we've talked about this before on the podcast of like increasing by 10% or 10 miles per week per year. Like, I think all of these, again, it's like arbitrary numbers because 10 is cool. Yeah. Like, and you know, it would be, it's not a lot more scientific if it was like, you should do 9.5. Yeah. But I think it's just like, you know, these are just like people grabbing random numbers out of the Yeah. Universe. And our body has no concept. It could be 42. Yeah. Our body. Yeah, exactly. It's like we were talking about with the vaccine side effects the other week. The point of the vaccine isn't like, it's that it causes cellular level stress. So it's like doing more miles and just like anything else in life can be. And everyone processes stress differently and stress is on a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum is injury and self-destruction. Like some of those horror stories we were obliquely referencing before on the other end is like adaptation and uplifting and being able to be a good partner and have sex, you know, however many times per month that a person does or whatever. Um, and that those things are all parts of the stress spectrum. So when you're thinking about miles, you're thinking about stress, not distance. And I think the other thing too, and we could almost have this, I feel like this could be an asterisk I apply to every single training topic on the podcast is the fact that like an individual within their own life will yeah. also respond to stress very differently. Like I know at age 30 right now, I respond to stress very differently than I did yeah. at age 22. Like, you know, it takes me a lot longer, like as, as evidenced by my one day rest day zombie walking, like it does, it takes me a lot longer. But to I also to stress. see that you know, where you were last year responding to stress was way worse than where you are now. You know, that there's- So we these, all go in different cycles. Yeah, yeah, there's oscillations of this. And the whole time it's like, well, if miles were miles per week were your validity or is judging the validity of your training, then you would have no concept of where you actually are. And so right now you're fitter than you've ever been, fitter than you were at 22. But, you know, if you were saying, well, is miles per week what my value as a runner is, you'd be like, well, I'm not as good of a runner. And I think a lot of people play that game, particularly when Strava charts summarize it so neatly. Um, and those charts are so easy to be like, okay, I am the height of that bar. But it's just one number. You know, you yeah. think about like you have vert in there, you have time. Actually, for me, like 60 miles a week in California, totally different than 60 miles a week in Colorado. Like I get a lot more bang for my buck 60 miles a week yeah, in and, Colorado. And we consider that when we plan athletes. Training. And what I've seen is that a five mile run for someone with a certain stress context, they will adapt to that the same as an athlete doing a 12 mile run. It's not that, oh, that five mile person, they need to adapt for stress to, to, like lessen their training and they're not going to be as good is that they can be as good because the body is not adapting to the miles. This is actually adapting to the stress too. Good example being Wyatt million who just, 
I think it's just pronounced million, who just set the Backbone Trail FKT, 70 miles, 13,000 feet of climbing. He only did a, a week with 70 miles or 13,000 feet of climbing and training once. Um, the point being, Wyatt's stress context allows him to adapt to lower volumes. Not everyone's like that. Some people need I was gonna say, so some people do 120 miles a week, some people do 30 miles a week. Like it's just yeah. a total spectrum. And you can there. adapt to your peak potential at all those different levels. And I think it's really interesting. Do you want to break down real quick the physiology of like why this happens and what we're thinking about as the body is accumulating these miles and yeah. like, like responding to stress and training? That's awesome. Um, so the big the big place to start is the aerobic system. Um, the angiogenesis, so blood vessels form. <laughs> this is actually oh, super no. funny. Oh no. Yeah, I, before the podcast, so we have like this long flowing podcast. It's like 190 of, like, pages. Of, like all the prior podcasts that we've done. I controlled F angiogenesis on here because I saw you put this yeah. on here and I'm like, how many times have you talked about angiogenesis? How many which have is, I? Uh, nine times, which oh, is how wow. new blood vessels develop. So I'm going to make us do a whole topic. I'm going to, we're going to like go through angiogenesis because I'm like, we should really explain this in much greater detail. <laughs> it's like as, a, as opposed to just like this like Silicon Valley buzzword. It's like, yeah. yeah, angiogenesis happens. It's like getting called up to do a book report that you haven't read. Angiogenesis. It's Spark very complicated. Spark notes told me angiogenesis. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever use Spark notes in AP Lit? There are a few abstracts for sure. Um, so it, that um, that is now my summary. That's all I'm going to say. Um, metabolic efficiency, so like lipid oxidation, things like that. Um, aer general aerobic capacity increases. Um, those are all very productive things. Then the musculoskeletal system, general strength starts to increase. Output per stride. Um, one really interesting point is that bone density may increase to that stress. Yeah, but I think it's it depends. I think I think that's also very gender dependent. There was actually an interesting article that just came out recently, um, and it's not even published yet. I, what I read was a proof, um, at least as of last week, that looked at college runners and found mm -hmm. that male bone density was improving um, over the year, but females didn't. And so yeah. there's like so many different factors. When that it gets how stress is just so complicated and how the body is actually responding to it, right? Like those female runners, they may have had many risk factors. And like they you might think say, about like estrogen yeah. levels. You think about menstrual cycle. You think about um, even like the background strength training they're doing, and also in collegiate runners, you would expect bone, like, you know, collegiate yeah. runners are probably still growing, their bones are still developing. So you would expect to have these bone rod density changes over the year. But you think about stress, it's like those runners might think 70 miles per week is making me stronger when in fact the stress is making them weaker. Um, and the, every variable works like that. It's not just obvious things that we can measure like bone density. It's also your running economy and your VO2 max and all these different things that follow oscillations to stress that are nonlinear and just not, not even nonlinear are fully unpredictable unless you have a full context. Um, then also the biomechanical and neuromuscular systems can, can improve. Um, but the place we really want to highlight are the risks. Um, one is the obvious injury. I think we focus so much on injury that we don't remember that athletes that of, can avoid going to the hospital also can have major setbacks and that that stagnation and regression process is like of overstress is always there at the surface and overstress isn't always obvious when you're looking at it from the outside. And I think this gets back to the point that we have about these people that are like very successful in sport for a few months or a few years and then all of a sudden they just disappear and you yeah. kind of forget about them and you never hear from them again and i think it's so important like those are often people like that we're looking to yeah. in sport and i think it's just so important to view everything within that context yeah so you know when you're thinking about increasing your volume it's an extremely valid goal you can throw out the numbers of what exactly the volume is and pay deep attention to the stress that you're feeling and going through and how you're actually adapting to what you're doing if it's fun if you're enjoying it if you're noticing that your workouts aren't suffering I think you can increase volume up to like a pretty substantial margin as long as you're healthy and treating your body well for almost anyone. And I think quickly we have like three guidelines for thinking about increasing volume. And the first one is just keeping it easy and being consistent. Like I think the worst thing that I've seen is like these stop and start cycles and people like yeah. whether it may be like they have a super busy life or like, you know, they're training too hard and then have to stop. And it's like those cycles make someone susceptible to injury at all times. So we're actually, we're watching right now Last Chance You. It's awesome on oh, Netflix. so good on basketball. It's about, yeah, it's about the ELAC college versus a junior college. And the coach tells his players 
here is he's like, we have to practice every day because if not, like guys start getting hurt. Yeah. Um, and we see that in running too. And, you know, we have all athletes take a rest day once a week, but it's like, it's so important to keep those cycles. But we generally try to avoid like long periods of time off without a reason. Um, you know, we, we avoid really long off seasons and try to sprinkle that rest throughout the year for just that reason. We're going to actually talk about last chance to you next week. We had it on that line, but skipped it today. Uh, number two is self-care and stress reduction. Um, you know, if this is a stress equation, this goes throughout all of life, not just when you're running. It's so important to contextualize it and work on giving yourself that love, that compassion to let yourself actually adapt to the stress. And across so many different mediums too. Yeah. I think about this as like, you know, you know, stretch, do, like eat well, like there's so many different ways. Eating enough being maybe the key one. I was I think there's so many different ways in which you can manifest that self-care and it's really important to start like adding all of this together. And then the last point too, is just not getting caught up in numbers. Like, yeah. I feel like we've really emphasized this on this podcast between the sex 12 times a day yeah. and the Strava numbers. Like, I feel like these are just numbers. Like these are numbers are like just constructs. We're just coming yeah. up with random numbers, like 42. And I think it's just so important. Like the body doesn't care about that. Like the body does not know numbers. We are the, not communicating to our body in numbers. The body doesn't give a fuck. So if your brain, thank you, that's much more succinct than I was trying to say. <laughs> if your brain is telling you, I am not enough because of this thing or whatever, remember that it doesn't quite work that way. Step, try to step back. I mean, it's what we're trying to do all the time. Try to take a step back, be like, okay, this is in a broader context. I'm growing, I'm developing as a person, not just with running, but also emotionally. And then that's where the magic of like chasing your potential comes is in having that context and being able to view yourself as like, Oh man, I'm hurtling towards the earth. That thud is coming so and I'm it, loving it the whole I was time. I like getting to layer that all together in a silly way. Also, speaking of silly, thank you for listening yeah. to us extend beyond our typical yeah, 30 exactly. minutes. This is bonkers if you're listening to us. Um, Maybe thank our you. longest one. Yeah. Plus. Thank you so much. Rate, subscribe, review, whatever you do to podcasts. I don't know. You guys <laughs> are awesome. We love you guys. Thanks everyone. Woo! Bye.